Hi there and welcome to another Osler podcast. My name's Todd Fraser. Lena Bergman is an intensive care nurse and researcher from Gothenburg in Sweden. Her major research interest is in transportation of ventilated patients and she joins me this morning to talk about her work. Welcome, Lena. Well, thank you very much, Todd. Lena, how risky is the process of transporting a ventilated patient? Uh, well, uh, I would say that uh, this is a really risky process. Um, when I did my research and asked the clinicians in the ICU, one of the most common responses I got when like, just discussing about transporting critically ill patients was that this is like one of the worst things that we do. So that's how like the clinicians and the personnel do experience this process, which is not unimportant. Uh, but also, if you look into the research, uh, the research that have been done around transport uh, of critically ill patients, we can see that uh, patient complications is really common. Uh, and that means, uh, for example, uh, changes in the patient's vital signs, respiratory deterioration or circulatory failure. Uh, some observational studies has, for example, shown that uh, patient complications occur in up to 70% of the transports that we do perform, uh, and especially those uh, with patients on mechanical ventilations, of course. Um, so, yes, it is a risky process. Um, um, yeah, and our research as well, uh, we did look at safety hazards, um, so we did explore the process from a system perspective um, to investigate potential system failures and contributing factors to adverse events. Um, and that is like a patient complication that did not occur from the patient's underlying disease, um, a common term that we use within patient safety research. Uh, we, could, we actually identified um, 365 safety hazards during 51 transfers. So that number just gives you like a broad sense how how risky it actually is. Yes. You mentioned uh, that um, as you know, up to seventy percent of patients have a complication. Uh, what are the sorts of mm -hmm. things that um, that patients have go wrong, and what are their longer term impacts? Because seventy percent is an awfully large number, isn't it? Yes, it is. Um, so we do have to like uh, be a little bit cautious about that number because um, basically what they have done in those kinds of studies is that they have just like have had a baseline value and looked at uh, complications in terms of, for example, uh, circulatory failure. Uh, so we can't really be sure about if those complications would have occurred. Uh, because of the patients. I mean, they're, they're critically ill and they are in the ICU. So, of course, they're very vulnerable to changes like moving them from from um, from the ICU bed to the stretcher to perform a CT scan, for example. So, some of these, uh, what I mean with that is that some of these complications might not be possible to avoid. Uh, but then we can look at those complications uh, that are more related to patient safety incidents. And then we do know, if we look at those studies, that around 10%, um, which is, um, you can compare those numbers to like one in 10 patients do get harmed while receiving hospital care. Uh, from that perspective, we can really 
uh, do see that the the transport process is risky as well. Um, and I think those risks are um, there's a lot of challenges. While I mean, you have a patient that is critically ill, you have that have to receive the same standard of ICU care as in the ICU, uh, and by that I mean that the same kind of monitoring. Uh, but you do not have access to the same kind of resources that you do have in the ICU. Uh, so, for example, if a patient do get critically ill or get worse in the con- condition while you're in an elevator or um, on your way to the CT scan or the re- radiology department, um, that means that you are quite vulnerable as staff there to take care of the patient. And of course, also you have those risky moments, like like I mentioned before, um, the patient might have to lie down for several minutes while moving it, uh, moving the patient to the to the stretcher, for example, which is which is the risky moment. And also, one thing that we could really identify in our research was that the technology used uh, is not designed to support uh, the care that we have to provide. Uh, and I will give you an example of that as well. Um, for example, normally, like the cords and tubes are not like designed uh, to perform a CT scan. And I do bring up the CT scan as an example quite frequently because that is one of the most common reasons why we do have to transport the patients today. Um, so normally, the patient might lose its positive end expiratory pressure because we have to reconnect the tubes, for example. So that's just one example of of, um, of uh, things that can go wrong. Lena, tell us about the system errors and how how do how do you classify these types of outcomes into various system errors? Um, yes. So if we do look at the process from a system perspective, um, we were actually able to identify um, system errors, and by that I mean factors that can contribute to adverse events related to uh, teamwork, of course, which is crucial during um, this process, um, to tools and technology, um, to the environment uh, and to the supporting organization and to actually the task itself. Um, And the most prevalent um, contributing factor or like the area where we could identify most risks and hazards uh, were related to tool-centered technology, actually. Um, so like, like I mentioned before, that, that, that just basically we could identify uh, technical errors uh, that were quite common, but also things like the, that the te- technique use was not designed to support the care that we do have to provide. And also there's a, a lot of environmental safety hazards. Um, so, for example, that you do have to transport um, uh, through narrow hallways. There's a lot of those things that you might not consider as a risk, but when you do uh, investigate the process from a patient safety perspective, it becomes quite evident that that we have to manage these transfers through narrow hallways. Um, there's a lot of obstacles in the way that we have to. So besides actually looking after the critically ill patient, the staff always have to perceive and anticipate risks that might occur. 
Lena, when, with the benefit of the experience and knowledge that you have in this area, how do you think that we can make the process of transporting ventilated patients safer? Uh, well, yes, I do think there's a lot of things that can be done. Uh, so first of all, uh, I think it's important to acknowledge that this is a risky process. Um, and also from a safety perspective, uh, we have to also acknowledge that the context do matter. So I think this process has to be reviewed within your local clinical context uh, because the risks and hazard will vary. Um, but I do think that there are some generic things that we all could uh, benefit from trying to improve. Um, and first of all, the first thing that I would like to mention there is um, the importance of um, um, beneficial teamwork or well-functioning teamwork uh, because the, the team that do care for the patient during the transfer is, is uh, crucial or teamwork is crucial. Um, so, for example, um, that means to have um, a, a team leadership that is um, working, uh, adhere to assigned team roles, uh, use validated safety tools such as um, structured communication tools, loop communication. Um, of course, there's the, the factor that I mentioned before with tools and technology. I think that if we could... Uh, find or um, it, um, yeah, find better technical solutions that actually could support the work that we do perform. That will be very beneficial from a safety perspective. Um, if we look at the environmental safety hazards, um, there's also a lot of things that could be improved. Uh, for example, we could provide safe passages for the transfers uh, of ICU patients. Uh, there's a lot of things that could be done in, in the design, uh, for example, uh, looking at the examination rooms. Um, is it actually suitable for ICU care, for example? Um, so, yes, there's a lot of things that can be done. Um, also, one important thing that I would like to mention is, is uh, that was actually became quite evident in, in when we actually interviewed critical care nurses and physicians about what they needed to perform the transfer safely um, was what we all uh, normally uh, refer to as situational awareness. Um, so that means that within the team that we have to have um, shared understanding about um, the situation and what's next. Um, because during the transfers, you might not have the same access to your patients as in the ICU. Uh, and also, it's really important on forehand uh, before you leave the ICU to anticipate and um, prepare for potential safety threats. And that's, of course, unique to each patient because each patient has, have, of course, different needs. Lena, can you tell me a little bit about your research that looked at the perceptions of staff involved in transporting ventilated patients and how they see the process? Uh, yes, of course. Um, so we did interview critical care nurses and physicians about their experience of the transfer process um, and especially about their experience about when critical incidents do occur. And what we found in that research was that the staff really highlighted that uh, they needed organizational support. Uh, and by that, they 
highlighted things as coordination of the process. Um, and that means that they uh, had a uh, desire to spend as short time as possible in transit. And that means um, they thought it was very beneficial if everything was coordinated and synced so that they didn't have to be away from the ICU longer time than necessary. And of course, also availability of resources uh, and suitable transport equipment. Um, but then in terms of, of, of uh, teamwork, as I mentioned before, uh, we were also able to uh, identify professional skills and attributes needed and also those behaviors and actions that the staff um, highlighted as important to perform the transfer safely. And for example, um, situational awareness that I mentioned before, uh, which is about anticipating and predict potential scenarios that might occur. Uh, of course, knowledge and experience within the transfer team uh, and also to have su sufficient competence overall uh, to be able to uh, support each other if something would happen, uh, but also that everyone knew uh, their role and their responsibility. Um, and this could also vary depending on the critically ill patient. So this research research was actually carried out in Sweden when it's quite common that critically ill uh, critically critical care nurses do transfer the patients um, without physicians so and normally they thought that that were actually fine but of course depending on the, the, the patient's medical needs um, sometimes the physician was required as well um, and teamwork skills as cooperation and communications, team leadership, um, also follow and adhere to the routines that exist. And if they do exist, if they don't, that's also like one of the uh, um, things that the staff thought was very beneficial to have uh, standardized protocols, checklists uh, to help them um, organize the transport tasks and, and make sure that it didn't um, forget anything prior to the transfer. On the show with me today is Lena Bergman and we're chatting about the high-risk process of transporting ventilated patients. This is just one of an extensive series of podcast interviews with leading clinicians available completely free at www.oslocommunity.com where you'll also find a great range of free educational modules and resources. Lena, um, in the place where you work, can you give us some practical examples of how you go about preparing your staff? Do you simulate a lot of transfers or are there other techniques that you've used to give your staff the skills that they need to be able to safely perform um, patient transfer? Um, well, um I would say that at the moment we do not have any standardized like learning activity around this uh, process. So, for example, as you mentioned, Todd, uh, I think it would be very beneficial if we could actually do simulations on transfers because one of the things that I did um, experience doing my research was also that newly graduated critical care nurses, for example, like transfers is one of those things that they actually um, really um, are very, how to say, respectful towards. It's one of those things that, because you're quite alone uh, out there, so I think it would be very beneficial if we could support um, 
our staff that is not as experienced as those that have been working in the ICU for, say, 20 years. Um, so, um, but what I do think that we all could do to, to support the staff is to, like, one of the most basic, basic things is to review the protocols and the guidelines that we do have. And also to, to make sure that, uh, like from an organizational perspective, that we, we make sure that we do have a team uh, where we have enough competence and that we could also support each other. But of course, I think that in the future, there's a lot of things that could be done. Um, and I think it would be great if we could um, have um, some more activities towards um, crew research management training and simulation training. And I think that would be manageable to do with transfers as well, as we do with other high-risk uh, high risk events that we do practice on forehand. So, yes. Lena, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast and sharing your insights into this uh, very delicate at times process. Well, thank you, Todd, for inviting me. It's, it's been a great pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for joining me on the podcast today. For more great interviews just like this, visit our website at www.oslacommunity.com.